Adobe, I'm really excited today we get to talk with Kevin Turf, who's a friend of mine. I've known him for a number of years, and he had a crazy experience on 9-11 when he was stranded in a small town called Gander. Well, first of all, can I just say that it is shocking to me to acknowledge that 9-11 is almost 20 years upon us. Really is amazing. Um, 20 years. Second thing I have to be honest about is I had no idea where Gander is. I'm really well-traveled. I think I've been on every continent minus... I've been on every continent, actually, but I didn't know where Gander was. So I did have to do some, I did have to do some research. Um, and now we know that Gander is in Canada. Who knew? We are going to come back. I'm, I'm actually really curious about you having been on every continent. We're going to have to okay. talk about that in a future podcast episode. Um, and I'm a little jealous, too, as someone who loves to travel. Let's listen to the interview with Kevin. It's exciting. His his experience has actually become a Broadway musical. For those of you that are fans of Broadway, it's, it's the musical Come From Away. Uh, but I'm excited to introduce Kevin Turf. Welcome to the Key and Kite podcast. I'm joining you from Lagos, Nigeria, while Carter is in Denver, Colorado. Today, as we approach the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, hard to imagine that it's been almost 20 years, we're featuring Kevin Turf's experience as a 9-11 stranded airline passenger in Canada. His is one of the true stories that inspired the Tony award-winning Broadway musical, Come From Away. His story is also reflected in his memoir and audiobook, Channel of Peace, Stranded in Ganda on 9-11. Kevin is also the founder and president of Pay It Forward 9-11, which hopes to inspire people to perform three random acts of kindness on 9-11. Learn more at payitforward911.org. Kevin spent 19 years as the co-founder and president of EnviroMedia, a change marketing firm based in Austin, Texas. Kevin, thank you. I am so excited to get to talk to you. You and I have been friends for a long time, but we haven't actually talked to each other in a while. And your story uh, that we'll get into today, I think, is, is a remarkable story of, of resilience and a, a remarkable story of compassion, a remarkable story of gratitude. And I'm, I'm couldn't be happier to have you as a guest. Carter, it is great to be here with you, and um, congratulations on this new podcast. Thank you. So set the stage for us. On September 10th, 2001, you and, and your partner were in Europe and enjoying a European holiday. And on September 11th, what happened? Well, on September 11th, that morning, uh, we were in Paris, France, trying to get home to Austin, Texas, but our flight was scheduled to fly directly into New York City. On the morning of September 11th, we would have landed about 11 a.m. And so, like many planes that were traveling across the Atlantic Ocean, when the 9-11 terror attacks began and they closed U.S. airspace, our flight very abruptly took a sharp drop in elevation and a turn to the north. And I was looking up at the GPS map in the, the top of the airplane um, TV monitor, and it looked like we were flying to the North Pole all of a sudden. Took a few minutes before the, we were on Air France, before, a few minutes before the captain came on the PA and first said in French, something, something. And I thought I heard the word terrorism in English. There were a few gasps in the uh, in the crowd, a very mixed international crowd of passengers. And then um, then he came on and said in English, due to a terrorist attack in the United States, we'll be landing in Gander. Now, I didn't know if Gander was in Iceland or Canada or if it's a 
Newfoundland, I didn't know where we were going. And uh, so within about 30 minutes, we took a trek to the north and we landed. And for what would be a about 15 hours sitting on the tarmac on the plane, uh, really, for the most part, not really knowing what was happening in the world. Um, we didn't have access. To, you know, there were no international cell phone plans back then. There was no Google Internet on your phone. And so for hours, we didn't know what was happening until the captain did tell us after maybe four or five hours the most unthinkable thing, that the World Trade Center had been attacked by a plane and that it had fallen and that the uh, – Pentagon was hit, that a plane went down, and it, my partner Kevin just didn't believe it. He's, and I said, you know, how could you make this up? You can't make this. It's like out of a movie. So we knew we were safe, uh, but it was very an anxious time because my company in Austin knew a lot of people. They knew I was supposed to be landing in New York that morning. My parents, mom and dad in Nashville, Tennessee, I knew they would be concerned. I couldn't even reach them. Couldn't get off the plane. And, uh, but what happened was, um, so that night they announced that we would be spending the night in this tiny town. And this was a tiny town of 9,000 people that all of a sudden took in 38 international jumbo jets, totaling 6,500 people from 90 countries. And they let us into their country, they let us into their community, and they gave us food, clothing, shelter, and information and love for four days. And it really was a life-changing experience. I'm really curious. In your book, you wrote a book about the experience called Channel of Peace. And, I, and I'm, I'm really curious about your description of that moment because you described yourself as a refugee. And it wasn't a word I had thought of until I read it in your book. I didn't think of you in that way. Was that an intentional word choice to use the word refugee? Because that, that word has a different connotation in most people's minds. It does. And some people will agree, will disagree with me vehemently, but we were effectively, we were forced to flee from our own country because a war had broken out. And in fact, I was forced as like a refugee when I when four days later, when they opened U.S. airspace, Air France was not allowed into the U.S. So I was forced to a second country back to France. I didn't want to be there. Uh, but so I was nowhere near what the plight of the millions of refugees in this world are we, we have right now. But what I did have in common were the needs of a refugee. We needed food, clothing, shelter and information. Now, I had a credit card. I could have charged a room at a hotel. There are only three hotels in this place with 6,500 people. There were only 15 taxis in this town. You know, like, so I, I was completely, for the first time in my life, I had to rely on the kindness of strangers. I'll never forget the moment when it was midnight by the time we got inside of this community college where we slept on the ground with our fellow passengers in a classroom where they cleared back the desks. I'll never forget, you know, I needed a pillow to lay my head. And a, a young teenage boy walks in the door about midnight. I saw him, he had an inflatable air mattress and two pillows. And I'm like, oh, that's, that'll be a saving, saving grace. And so I got choked up when I, this young boy hands this over to me. And I said, thank you. And he said, you bet. And he turned and walked away. I never got his name. He didn't write his name on the pillows. I don't know if he got it back. The funny part of the story is that it blew up the inflatable air mattress and then we laid down on it. <laughs> so ultimately, we spent on the cold tile floor, but 
you know, again, it was nothing like what people were, the, the horrors of what was happening in New York and, and D.C., but it was just this one thing after another. There wasn't a single person in this small town who wasn't pitching in to help out. There wasn't a stove that wasn't turned on making food. There wasn't people that were like this young man. They were pulling pillows and sheets out of their closets, taking them off their own beds to come and give them to strangers. You tell the story in your book of Ron and Kathy Walsh. And as I was reading about Ron and Kathy, I'm thinking none of the individual acts that Ron and Kathy did were remarkable, big act. They were all just, how do we care for the basic needs of what's in front of us, right? How do we care for these 6,500 people? And, you know, they can't care for everybody, so they're going to care for the people in front of them, and they're going to take care of the people in front of them. But you add all that they did in together, and it becomes a remarkable act of kindness or series of acts of kindness. And in fact, that's where I really, as I, over the years, I've like, I kept, you know, calling it an act of kindness, but I really, uh, when I started working with the Charter for Compassion, I learned what the word compassion means. Compassion is to engage in the suffering of others. Now, by definitions, it would be, it would be kind if we went, if this was happening, the people of Gander went on Facebook and sent us thoughts and prayers. That's kind, you know, maybe even a little bit of empathetic. Empathy is to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Like maybe, there were a lot of people that came down and donated some things, you know, to volunteer. But like when you are letting people and strangers into your own home to take a shower, that's compassion. And that is what these people did. And that's what the world needs more of these days. Yeah, it's remarkable. The other thing that I really had not ever thought about until I was reading your book, Kevin, was among those 6,500 passengers getting off those 38 airplanes into the small town of Gander, you have, you have people from all over the world, including people um, from Arab countries and Muslims. And I can't imagine what they must have felt in that moment as they learned about the attacks in New York and Washington. And yet, one of the things that you say is that there was not hostility towards them, that the, that, that the acts of compassion went to everybody who got off the planes. And I, I think that's a remarkable testament to the people of Gander in that moment. That's right. In my book, Channel of Peace, Stranded in Gander on 9-11, I interviewed the mayor, Claude Elliott. This is a guy who <laughs> you and I have both been in politics long enough. He was the mayor for more than 20 years, and uh, and he's still a personal friend. I asked him, you know, weren't you worried? You know, you might be letting a terrorist off your plane, off one of these planes. And he said, we weren't going to let you all rot on those planes. Were we concerned? Yes. Do they take precautions? Yes. But they said, people are people and you treat them with love and kindness and respect and compassion. Actually, his line was people need help. You help them, you know, no, you don't put any, uh, you know, barriers. And so that's why, like, again, if this happened, I asked the question, I've, I've given a talk all over the, the world, you know, and, and it depends on where I'm giving the talk. If it's in uh, Texas or, or Oklahoma, people made blurt out. I said, would you let all these people in, including, the the Arabs, the Muslims, no. In Nebraska, in Colorado, maybe, you know, yes, we would, they would say. I'm 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 so curious about this because there's a woman I, I found as I was preparing for this, I found a video, um uh, an interview with a woman from Gander named Beulah Cooper. And and Beulah said Beulah said that when she saw the planes were coming, her thought was, quote, thank God they're coming here because I know they're gonna be looked after. 
and I'm fascinated by, I was, I was completely fascinated by that, that immediate reaction from Beulah. Thank God they're coming here because it exhibited a sense of communal compassion, right? Not just individual compassion, but communal compassion. And I'm curious, Kevin, if, if you have thoughts about where that sense of communal compassion comes from and how that sense of communal compassion is built. Uh, I uh, asked those questions in my book, and I did. Dula Cooper is uh, not only uh, interviewed, but she's also another person who's featured in this musical, Come From Away, like I am. And uh, so we've become very close friends. But I learned from Beulah and from others like uh, Mac Moss, who I talk about uh, in the book. I've become very close with their family still to this day. They explained to me that for a lot of them, certainly of a certain age, that growing up in Newfoundland, this is a remote island that the winters are extremely harsh there and that you have to rely on your neighbors. For example, even just a couple of years ago, they, it's, there was so much snowfall that Ron Walsh and Mac Moss, they, they're next door neighbors practically, both of their houses, it snowed so high, they were trapped in their own house. That snowed over the roof line. And there is no, you can't call 911 to have someone dig you out. One of your neighbors whose house did not get overtaken, they come rescue you. They to get their snowblower after they take care of themselves, which is what you do in compassion. You take care of yourself first, and then you take care of your neighbor. So it's things like that. But even going back to like 50, 60 years ago during the depression, when people said, if you were farming and you grew potatoes on your plot and you saw that your next door neighbor, that theirs just didn't take off, you automatically just gave them some of your potatoes. So that's, that is sort of the, the, what they will tell you is that it is ingrained and passed down from generations that this is who we are. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's an amazing sense of communal compassion and amazing, amazing town. You took that experience in Gander. You made it back to Austin, Texas. And as you were processing what had happened, you decided to try to spur more compassion through a pay it forward movement. Talk to me about how that started uh, and, and, and how you kicked that off. So, right, in the, we were coming up on this, the first anniversary of 9-11 in 2002, and I wanted to go back and thank those kind people. But first of all, they said, no thanks are necessary. Your debt is paid in full. You, were, you would do the same, they kept saying. Well, what they're talking about is the golden rule. Treat others like you want to be treated. And boy, I just it hurt my head. Like, I don't know. I hope we would do the same. I, I don't know. And so I wanted to go back and thank them, but I could have flown back to Paris and back cheaper and faster than getting back to this small, tiny town on this island in Newfoundland. And so I said, well, I can't go back and pay them back, but I'm going to pay it forward. I borrowed an idea straight from the book and the movie, which a fictional boy starts this movement by doing random acts of kindness and asks the recipient to create a ripple effect by doing three more good deeds for strangers. And so in order to, so I had a company in Media at the time, and we had about 40 staff uh, persons. And so I said, let's close down the company on the morning of September 11th and have people go do random acts of kindness. And to, to make it mandatory seemed a little harsh, but I thought, so how can I make it fun? And so I, I used some of my own cash, 
and gave out $100 bills and divided people up in teams of two and said, go out and do spend this money however you want. But work together with somebody else and how you figure it out. And then come back to the office in the afternoon and we'll share stories. Well, when we got back together to share those stories, we had to break out the Kleenex. People were were bowled over by this experience of forcing them to either go buy a cup of coffee for a stranger where they have to look at somebody in the eye that they realized they hadn't don't normally do. Uh, one you know, team went and bought a hundred dollar savings bond and gave it to a baby that was born on September 11th. You know, another, some crazy thing, somebody went and paid, went down to the uh, local municipal traffic court and paid for someone's traffic fines. (laughs) (laughs) But what they, they just had this opening that where they experienced what I I did a TEDx talk called the helper's high. You get this feeling of euphoria, just like a runner would get a runner's high after running for four miles. The psychologists have documented that your blood pressure goes down. You have this wonderful feeling of love when you as a, a donor give something to the recipient. The recipient, of course, feels great, but you feel probably even better by performing a random act of kindness or compassion. And so uh, that was my experience of seeing that. And so to this day, now we were approaching the 20th anniversary of Pay It Forward 9-11, and we've now incorporated as a nonprofit. And uh, we are inviting everyone to join us in this year we, we all back then, you remember, we all said this was the 2001 was the year before hashtags. Right. <laughs> if, there, if there were hashtags, it would have been never forget and and united we stand. Yeah, right. Absolutely. But we are not united. And so we believe that uh, our board said, let's focus on unity one random act of kindness, one pay it forward at a time this year. So we're looking to recruit as many businesses, houses of worship, schools, uh, nonprofits to join us and to uh, to see what we can do. I can tell you, I, I shared this story with you a couple of years ago when it when it happened. But the my my kids are in high school, and and the band marching band had a fundraiser at a local burger place, and and so everybody went to eat there. And I I typed up a note, and it was on September 11th, and I typed up a note that in two or three sentences told your story and told about how you'd started this pay it forward movement. I handed it to the server and said, I want to pay the bill for that table over there. And will you please just give me their bill and give them this note, but don't tell them who is doing it. And so the server walked the, gave me the bill and then walked the note over to the table. They looked at it, they wrote something on the sheet of paper, and then I saw the server take it to another table. And then I saw the server take it to another table. Wow. And, and, and I think by the time I finally left, because we were ready to go when I was paying the bills, it had gone through four or five tables just circulating around the restaurant. And, and that high that you talk about, right, was really there. Just getting to see the joy that people were getting from doing this and, and planting that seed of do something random, do something kind and caring for folks. And, and it really was just I got that high that you talk about in your TED Talk. That is that is awesome because my my belief is that we are we are in so many silos. You know, people will say, "Well, I'm kind. I'm kind to my family. I'm kind to the people that go to my church. I'm kind to my people that live in my city or my political party." But as for anybody else over the silo, not so much. Yeah, We've got to break down those silos. And I believe that like so many of our problems, from immigration to immigrants and refugees to climate change, gun control. 
we have got to break down these silos. And I think that the only way we can, we can't clearly, we can't persuade people with facts anymore. So um, I think that trying to connect on this level is just, is why not give it a try? One of the fascinating things that, that uh, happened because of your experience in Gander is a Broadway musical was created, um, including an, a character in the Broadway musical named Kevin. And it has been fun to watch you engage with the musical. And you, it's been really fun as your friend and watching you on social media to watch you use the musical as a platform to allow you to continue to spread the, the word about Pay It Forward 9-11 and about the need for compassion. What in the world is it like to have a Broadway musical with a character named Kevin up on stage? The only word for it is surreal. I get the question all the time. It's surreal. I mean, uh, I have to I now have a spreadsheet of all the actors who have played me in different productions. I can't keep up. It keeps growing. <laughs> the musical is like there's that it's now because of COVID it's been off, but it, they down under in Australia, they, because they conquered, it, it's the only place where Comfort Way Australia is running and they're uh, about to resume in Sydney this week, but uh, in the London and Toronto, there's a North American Kevin T as a Broadway Kevin T they'll resume on September 22nd. So it's, it's, it's humbling and it's, and it's funny because I say there are, you know, Six guys that are better, younger, better looking, singing, dancing versions of me. It has been so much fun to see. And as I told you before we, we started the conversation, I have not yet seen Come From Away, but but you said it's coming out on video in September. So I'll at least be able to see it then before I get to see it on yeah. Broadway. Apple TV Plus is going to debut it in September, probably around the 11th. And it's it was filmed in this by the same company that did the Hamilton recording. So it was filmed in the theater as if you were there with a very, very small audience of people wearing masks. So it was a little different, but, um, but I'm anxious to see. And this is uh, what, to me, what's great is that not everybody likes musical. This will open it up. So I think a lot more people will get to hear this important story because I, I believe that going back to the people of Gander are the heroes. And so it's, it's, they're the ones who, uh, it's really great to see them being honored. And I think that they're, they're a, they serve as a beacon for how we're all supposed to be living. And uh, so I hope that people learn from that. I'm, I'm curious about your faith and how that underpins all of this, because one of the one of the themes all the way through your book is the role that faith has played in your life. And I get a sense that, at least from your book, that there have been moments where people in your church have showed great compassion to you and that those have been significant moments for you. And I'm, I'm curious, as you look back 20 years now on that experience in Gander, how your faith may have helped shape that experience. Well, my, I, I grew up Catholic, and um, the hardest part of uh, being a Catholic was when I decided to come out of the closet as a gay man in 1991, and that did not go well with my faith. Although I, at the University of Texas, I joined a church where I found there were people just like me who were born this way, and yet we wanted to be remain faithful to our church that we were invited into when we were baptized into that church. So most of my friends, because of statements and politics and rhetoric from the Vatican, they all left. They left the church. And so I, but I, I decided I wanted to, you can't change 
an institution from the outside. So I decided I would keep my foot in the door and I have yet, <laughs> I'm still here. It has been hard, but um, because there have been times when, um, you know, my faith has always been there. And, and I believe that kindness and compassion are at the heart of really every religion. In fact, that's what I learned from the Charter for Compassion, that compassion is included in the golden rule and specifically is specifically mentioned in virtually every religion in the world. It's said different ways, but the same concept are there. Treat other people like you want to be treated. That's, I was my upbringing for my parents. I credit them, the church for sure. But really, my spiritual life really took off when right around this show happened. And because a number of surreal, strange spiritual experiences were happening. And I went to, I went to a seven day silent retreat. And that's where I had this vision where I saw the word immigrant written on a whiteboard. And this has never happened to me before. And uh, ultimately, long story short, you'll have to read the book, but I, that's why I moved to New York City. Did, I saw another sign. I joined this church and I joined their immigration accompaniment program because I thought this is what, what, what they did at this church is they would go and visit people who were being held up in our corporate run immigration detention centers. People were seeking asylum. And so they would just go out to visit them to make sure they're okay. And I thought, I can do that. It's the people of Gander. They would do it in a heartbeat. So I, I, I met a, uh, a man and I accompanied him through the whole asylum process. He was granted asylum and we were able to get his family reunited from Nigeria to the United States and being able to witness that at the airport after being separated for more than a year and a half, mind blowing, life changing experience, just as much as the Gander experience was. The idea that the golden rule shows up in, in all major faiths, whether the words are exactly the same or not, the idea and the concept is there is, is really powerful. And I think the idea of how we treat those that need compassion in a moment when they need compassion is the story of of your book, the story of Come From Away and the story of Pay It Forward 9-11, right? Is can we just show a little compassion in the world? Can we exemplify that golden rule and think about the power that comes if we would all just do a little bit more of that. That's right. It's, it's pretty simple and it's attainable. And the one important thing I also learned is that compassion can be trained. You can train your brain to be more compassionate. So it's not like, oh, well, all the curmudgeons, the angry people out there, it's possible for, for all of us that we, and one way to sort of get to become more compassionate is to practice random acts of kindness. And the more you do it, it's like training yourself, your brain to do other things. It just comes naturally. So it's not just one day on 9-11, myself and many, many, I've got many stories I hear all the time of people who they participated and paid for 9-11. And then a few months later, they decide I'm going to join a nonprofit board. I've never done this before, you know, or another person who, you know, they'll just do like you, they'll pay for somebody's coffee or whatever, just because they like that helper's high feeling. Right. And, it is, it uh, is amazing how doing an, doing something compassionate is is in many ways a selfish thing just based on the feeling that you get back. Yes. Yeah, it's really remarkable. Kevin, if people want to get engaged with Pay It Forward 9-11, how do they do that? How can they, how can they be a part of this movement you're building? Uh, thanks. The, the website is payitforward911.org. 
And uh, we are encouraging people to sign up early and to help spread the word and to tell others and their networks just to join. It's not about money. You don't have to pay anything to, to participate. You don't have to donate. You don't have to give out the $100. There are so many things you can do for free to help others, to be random acts of kindness. So all of that is on our website. And, uh, and then if you want to learn some other stories, uh, there's a, in my book, Channel of Peace, there is a whole chapter of the best heartwarming stories from over 15 years of doing this. And my website for the book is channelofpeacebook.com. I enjoyed reading your book. Uh, I, I learned a lot reading your book, and I appreciate uh, the work that you did to put that book together and to write the book and to, and, and to make it available for all of us to read. Love the story of the compassion that the people of Gander showed to you and, and 6,500 other people uh, on 9-11 20 years ago. And, and I'm so grateful that you've told the story and that you're building from that. Thank you, Carter. So a couple of things struck me about this. First of all, just remembering 9-11, where I was, my situation, the way 9-11 changed my life and changed the world. So this brought back some very, very deep memories about that time in our lives. What was phenomenal about the way Kevin told that story, I'd never actually thought about. So I guess the way I think about refugees it's very different in the example that he gave in today's context where, you know, everything from Afghanistan to, I mean, you pick up a, a region in the world where, where there's a real refugee crisis. I would never have thought that somebody who was in that situation would have thought of himself as a refugee, but indeed he was a refugee. And just thinking about the way people reacted to complete strangers at that time when there was so much uncertainty, nobody really knew or understood what had happened. And the way people, the way people rallied round to, you know, to help people in really uncertain times really struck me. I think there's a really interesting line in Kevin's telling of his story and kind of in his life as well that centers around the word refugee. And I had never, it, you heard me say to Kevin that, that I had never thought about that term in relationship to what he went through on 9-11. And I was really struck by that as well. But then he came back to the United States and moved to New York City and actually began working with and serving refugee families. And I think that's there as well. And if you want to go really deep into this, you know, Kevin, Kevin is a religious guy and a strong Catholic. And you think about the story of Jesus Christ as a refugee. And so I think, mm. I think these, this theme of refugee for Kevin keeps playing in ways for me that are really interesting to watch as he makes his way through this life and thinks about his own journey with what happened on 9-11. And also sort of unrelated, but We'll talk about it as well. Just I'm Catholic as well. And just being a gay Catholic man who really does love his faith. Yeah. Um, but in some ways was, was treated as a bit of a refugee, as, as, as a bit of an outcast, as lots of gay Catholics are treated. That was also a very interesting part of his journey, I thought. Yeah. Really is amazing to, to listen to yeah. him talk about that. What was the second thing that struck you with the interview? 
Second thing is sort of at the end, it was quite, it kind of came full circle. I'm Nigerian by heritage, as you know. So the fact that he became a refugee sort of um, helper to a Nigerian man who had been displaced and um, just understanding what it is in this day and age to be a Nigerian who's trying to get to the US. I mean, even that, I felt like there is so much more to this story. This is just like, that was the beginning of, that was like part two of the story, which we didn't get to. But just the way he ties in, you know, him being a refugee, the fact that the youth, that the, 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 the guy who brought him a pillow and a duvet, I have four kids about that age. I have kids in, in their 20s and, and down to 13. I just thought even that young people, I mean, obviously these kids were raised by very compassionate people, but the fact that everybody from people you'd never met before down to youth, when, when they're in, in a time of crises, it's always such a beautiful thing to see how all hands are on deck to make people feel welcome, to show people love and compassion, people who, who need that, to get it that way, even from, from, you know, from young people who people generally don't consider as, as, as deep and emotional and compassionate. So I love the youth angle. I loved the way, first of all, I learned about Ganda. I learned about this, this really small town, 15 taxis in the entire town. And I was trying to imagine a plane landing on certain times, 9,000 people in the entire town took in 6,500 people. I mean, where did they stay? How did they do this? It must have been, there weren't enough hotels, I would imagine. So it's people, regular folks who open their homes to people they didn't know at really uncertain times. And I mean, that really struck me as it's what we wish for. That's the world that we wish we lived in, we existed in, but sadly it isn't. I think about how for those people in Gander to say, we are opening our doors to everybody, come on, we're going to take care of you. It's a really amazing bit of compassion. Right. I was actually working at the campaign for tobacco free kids when when on 9/11. Yeah. Um, my husband was in New York working at Citigroup and in fact his building, building 7 was the third building or the second building to go down. And I remember walking into the office and all our colleagues saying, "Is Yomi okay?" Yeah. I was on the metro so I had no idea what had happened. And so my husband was actually trauma. He, I think he walked from New York City to New Jersey that day. I walked from downtown DC, from, from our offices to Connecticut Avenue. I must have walked, you know, three hours that day. So when I, I started out by saying Kevin's story brought back so many deep memories of that time. My husband was traumatized for months. Um, he kept his suit his soot covered suit that wow. uh, to this day, he has that suit completely covered in soot. Thankfully he wasn't in the office. He was in a training downtown and he literally, him and his colleagues saw that second plane go into that building. So he was traumatized for years. And um, so I can only imagine, you know, what it's like for people who, who actually lost people. I know what it's like living with somebody who saw a lot of that stuff. And so, yeah, it brought back, some pretty, pretty tough memories that I think about every 9-11. And this is about the time that we have those conversations and we talk to our kids. And, and for them, obviously, it's something they read, they research. It, it's not even real to them. Yeah. Kevin and I actually had the opposite experience that you and your husband had, which, which was mm. we didn't see any of it. I flew and landed in Chicago 
before the attacks happened, and I was sitting in a restaurant at the Hilton Hotel right at O'Hare, waiting mm -hmm. for our colleagues to have breakfast before we went up to this meeting. And it happened, and we were able to get to a TV and watch a little bit of the coverage, but immediately our thoughts and work turned to, how do we get home? Hmm. And they shut down all air traffic, so so it meant driving for those of us that were in were in at this meeting and, and getting a rental car. And we ended up getting some of the last rental cars out of O'Hare that day. And I drove, the, I drove down to Austin, Texas, and the rest of the crew drove back to D.C. But we experienced it in a very different way because mostly it was on radio as we were driving across the country. What, what else struck you about the conversation with Kevin? You know me, I'm a people person. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm black, I'm Nigerian by heritage. I was born in the US, I've lived all over the world. So I really am a global citizen. It takes a lot for me to imagine being intolerant of anybody, right? Yeah. But I, but I, and also in the fabric of my family, we have everything from Italians to gays to, I mean, I really, the tapestry of my family just is such that I cannot imagine being intolerant of anybody. But I know that that's the world we live in today. So, so I'll go back to the point that really struck me, thinking again about the world we live in today and how easy it is to generalize about any group of people. Again, to have people from a small town and knowing what they knew at that time, knowing that it was you know, a set of Arabs who did this thing. And their concern was, well, no, they would be welcome here too. And I'm I prefer that it's here because I knew they'd be looked after. That really struck me. Yeah. I, I, I was amazed by that, that sense yeah. of, of communal compassion, communal compassion. That, that gets yes. described in Gander. Yes. yes. And, and I'm yes. still very curious in exploring conversations right. about where communal compassion like that comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Really amazing. The flip side of that, you know, I, I do remember in 9-11 that there was a lot of fear of Arabs and of Muslims. It was the way people reacted, even, even if it wasn't justified, even if the fear wasn't justified. And I had not thought about, until I read Kevin's book, I had mm -hmm. not thought about what the Arabs and the Muslims on the planes that were landing in Gander <laughs> must have been thinking, because they were in a place that, you know, most of them had probably, you know, like the two of us had not ever heard of. And we're all of a sudden refugees. You know, I also have a personal example. Somebody you might remember. We had, I don't know if I can mention her name on the podcast. Oh, sure. But we, we had a colleague, Sarah, yeah. who worked at the campaign, who was, I'm tempted, she was either Indian or Pakistani Muslim. And she was covered. We met her as a woman, yeah. as a Muslim, covered herself. And I remember her coming to the office for the first time and I'd seen her hair and she stopped covering herself. Is that right? And I didn't, I don't yeah, remember that. Did. I didn't, I don't know that she I knew did. that. She, she did. She, um, uh, she told us a story of how um, she became very aware of her, of her physical, her physical Muslimness as it were, um, because you know, she, she used to be covered. And I'm tempted to say it was after 9-11 and the sentiments around Muslims and Arabs led to her uncovering herself. I need wow. to go back and check that. But yeah. Um, and I remember being really fearful for her. And, and I remember, I remember her fear, sure. you know, coming into downtown DC from, you know, from home to work 
And um, we were all really concerned about her. And I just remember thinking, gosh, um, can you imagine just being, so I, I don't face it like that. I'm black, but I think, you know, people don't react to black people the way you'd have reacted to an Arab during 9-11. Yeah. But just, you know, just being a young woman, an American for all intents and purposes, and just feeling very foreign and feeling like a bit of a target must have been um, quite an experience for a lot of people, but certainly one person we know personally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I do think I, I remember that, you know, that time as, as both there being a lot of fear, but also a lot of compassion as, yes. as people came together around the world yes. uh, and responded yes. to, to those horrific acts. Well, I think the other thing for me is just the work that Kevin has done since this happened and the whole idea of pay it forward 9-11. The last thing you said was I yeah. would act. And I was going to piggyback on that to say the final thing that really yeah. struck me is actually not only just struck me, has inspired me. We'll talk about what I want to do with that here in Nigeria. This whole pay it forward movement. Yeah. I thought, what a, what a great, I mean, what a great, I mean, they shut the office. Did they shut the office down? Or oh, I think yeah. the story was right the, the on, the, office, on that first anniversary, they shut the office on down. That first anniversary. And I thought, what a great, you know, 9 11 brings back so many hurtful memories to a lot of people, right? Yeah. Yeah. But imagine turning that around and just being inspired to turn that into an opportunity to, you know, to, to, to have to make um, random acts of kindness. And your, the, the story you told about um, paying someone's bill at the restaurant and sitting there and watching a couple of people, the reaction to, to them having their bills paid for. And I think you said four or five people in the restaurant did that before you left. So this, this idea of the, the high, the rush you get from giving and from kindness, really, it's a way I, I live that life anyway, but to hear it articulated in such a way has really inspired me. I mean, 9-11 is upon us, as I, as I said earlier, um, here in Lagos, Nigeria, I will, would love to do something similar at, at my place of work because 9-11 affected all of us. I, you know, I work for yeah. a Nigerian company living here in Lagos, but there are quite a few Americans in, in my company and everybody can relate to 9-11. Yeah, absolutely. I have, I have yeah. uh, because of Kevin, I have every year on 9-11 done, done some kind of random act awesome. of kindness and, and it is very fun for me. And I do, I get more out of it than anyone that receives the, you know, do whatever I do. It's never a big deal, but I try to do something small just to make someone's day. That's awesome. Yeah, it's That's fun. Awesome. It was a lot of fun to talk to Kevin. I really, I enjoy I reconnecting with him. We should say that Come From Away, the Broadway play that is based mm -hmm. on Kevin's experience and, and the experience of others in Gander and based on the the amazing compassion of the people of Gander, uh, Come From Away, and, and this is not a paid promotion, Come From Away will premiere globally on Friday, September 10th on Apple TV+. Plus. So if you've got Apple TV+, Plus, uh, it's a chance to be able to see it without going to Broadway. Uh, but Broadway is also reopening in October. And so a chance to see it there as well. Um, I'm excited. I've never seen Come From Away. I'll be watching it on September 10th. I will be too. Yeah. Maybe we should have a Zoom. Uh, we could have a Zoom party. party. I wonder Maybe. if Kevin's going to do something like that. We'll have to ask him. Find out. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Adobe. I'm really excited because next time we are going to talk to Julie Becker. 
Uh, Julie Becker runs a program for homeless people in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, in the United States. And I'm excited to get to share her story and her, the story of her work. Looking forward. I'm going around the U.S. on this podcast with you. Well, and hopefully so, once we get this, we're in episode two right now. Once we get this up and running, hopefully around the world, not just the U.S. That's awesome. The Key and Kite podcast was created and hosted by Carter Hedrick and co-hosted by me, Adobe Oniwinde. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please help us out and let other people know. You can also rate us and provide a review on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on Twitter at Key and Kite Pod. The podcast is produced by Carter Hedrick. Music for the Key and Kite is written and performed by the Avery Gross Band. Their album, The Devil May Care, reached number 10 on the Billboard Blues album chart. Their next album, Telltale Heart, will be released on September 24, 2021. Learn more at avgrouseband.com. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Please join us again next week. <music>